Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. Tonight's show is on artefacts, what we can learn from them, how we interpret them, their importance to our history and what we think Ireland's most important and interesting ones are. You can email us your thoughts and views to talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week we found out about the Scarf Martyrs, the famine in Kenmare and the development of Dublin in the first part of the 20th century. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's show is on historical artefacts their significance and how we interpret them. And it's inspired in part by a new exhibition coming to Limerick's Hunt Museum later this month. From the 21st of July to the 11th of September, the Artifacts Project will be in Limerick, giving visitors the chance to witness familiar objects from pre-colonial Ireland in a different light. And so to discuss artifacts and their place in our history, I'm delighted to be joined by Lynn Scarf, the director of the National Museum of Ireland, Helen O'Carroll, the creator and manager of Kerry County Museum, and Dr Jill Cousins, the director of the Hunt Museum in Limerick. And later in the show, I'll be talking to Trevor White, the director of the Little Museum of Dublin. Well, you're all very welcome. And Lynn, I might begin with you. And a broad question maybe about, I suppose, why artefacts matter, what we can learn from them and why they continue to intrigue and inspire us. God, what a big question to start with, Patrick. I, I mean, I think coming from a national museum where we have our national collection, which is over four million objects spanning history, there is something incredibly powerful about the object when you're looking at it and how it reflects back our identity, right? And I think there's this tie between material uh, with between material collections and objects and our identity is really strong. And that in many ways ties into what we see with our visitors, which is when they come in and they see something, it's the story about the object itself, about the people connected to that object, about its time in history and what it can and what it can tell us. And in some ways, I often think of them as being kind of anchors in a sense, you know, that we talk a lot, perhaps, through the recent decade of centenaries about how arts and culture has been so important in us talking about contested histories and difficult periods. And I think artefacts have been important in that, be they, you know, of paper in nature or textiles or, you know, different objects within our collection, because in some ways they offer something for people to talk around and to talk through. And I think there's a great strength in that. And I sometimes wonder if artefacts is maybe the wrong word because artefacts sounds very fancy and very, very, very elitist or something. Whereas this could be as simple as a bell from 100 years ago or or it could be... Yeah, a a very simple object. It could be a a button that somebody wore on their coat. You know, it it, it can be a cup. It can be, um, you know, actually, interestingly enough, it's it's Traveller Pride Week this week. And we have a a, a new member of our team, Owen Devardoon, who's working on looking at traveller culture and the collection within the National Museum of Ireland. And we were having a conversation about what we have in the museum representing traveller culture and what it should be. And he told me this wonderful story about how actually the cups in his in his I think he said his mother's uh, would be so important to take because these cups were the last cups that somebody drank from before they passed and that's that's so powerful when you think about that right because everything that it represents of that culture and that heritage and that community and those stories and it's 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 I think that kind of piece that really matters it's a way for us to get a greater understanding of each other 
fundamentally often as well and of different periods in history. And Helen, is that part of the reason why we're so... It, it means something to us when we see these items. It's because they connect us to our past. They connect us to, it might be a, a recent period of history, but it might also be a thousand years ago. And and we, we get a sense of how people lived and, and what things were like for them. Yes, for sure. And I mean, the thing is that the, uh, you know, objects in museum collections come with people and stories attached. Um, so, and the thing is, I think one problem can be that once an object comes into a museum and, you know, gets put behind a glass case and, you know, starts acquiring layers of expertise, which which they have to acquire, you know, how we understand it in terms of uh, archaeology, history, science, anthropology, all of that kind of stuff. All of that expertise is very essential, and without it, we can't understand or realize the significance of the object. But often, I think that can create a barrier as well. That you know, you might get an object in that's a very ordinary object that was in somebody's house or something like that, and suddenly it acquires this this great um, you know majesty because it's been put behind a glass case, um, and. The way for people then to connect with that is drawing the story of the object out because the objects, you know, we like to say the object speaks for itself, but quite often an object doesn't speak for itself. Do you know that you have to um, put it in its context and, and get the get the story behind it as well? And once you do that, once you connect the object back to the living, breathing person who either made it or handled it or touched it or venerated this or whatever the connection was, once you make that connection between the person or the people and the object, I think that's when, when you get the, uh, the, the real meaning and the, that, that the object becomes real for people. You know, otherwise, it can be sometimes very hard to they take something like a stone axe. It can sometimes be hard to get people to see that actually somebody actually had to make this. Somebody actually used it many, many thousands of years ago. And... That otherwise it just becomes a lump of stone sitting in a in an expensive glass case. So um, I think that's that's the challenge for museums definitely is to not just house the objects but to bring them to life for people. And Helen, how difficult is it to put together an exhibition because you have all these different stories you want to tell, but you probably want to tell one overall story as well because otherwise you could have these these objects kind of pointing in all these different directions and it might just be very confusing and not really make sense. Well, you see, putting on an exhibition is, is essentially telling a story. You have to have your big idea. Why are you doing this? What is this exhibition essentially about? And from that everything else follows. And once you're clear, and the best exhibitions are always like that, because in a museum context, when people are coming into view an exhibition, there is a limit to the space that you have, to the amount of information you can put on the wall that people are going to read. But that's how I go about putting on an exhibition anyway, is the first question is, what is this about? What is the story here? 
Jill, I wonder when you look back over uh, artifacts, over over history, I wonder sometimes do we actually get the story wrong and uh, misinterpret what it was used for? Because I even think of something that, you know, I would have, I would have, and many of us would have had 40 years ago, cassette tapes. And the idea now trying to explain to someone that you used to have these tapes and you used to record things off the radio and play them back in, in, in the modern era now seems like completely unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, you, you constantly have to reassess uh, what an object or an artifact uh, is, where it's come from, um, your understanding of it. I think actually the, the Antrim Cross, which is one of the ones I would submit to be one of Ireland's greats, would be a very good example of that. So sort of, uh, originally thought maybe to be just a, a cross and thought maybe to be um, a plaque on a, on a missile. It has several academics have a look at it and then reinterpret what that is with more information. Uh, I think maybe just sort of taking up a a couple of the other uh, points that Lynn and Helen have made, the connection to other cultures is something which I think is very important that you're you're able to do in a museum with your objects. So you can actually get people to see their own history through other objects, other nationalities, other views of things. Lynn, I wonder, uh, would you have a sense of when you when you put together an exhibition, what are going, what ones are going to work? What, what items are going to be popular? Uh, are there certain things that always get the crowds in, and then some that you always have to to put more of, make more of an effort to to attract them in? Well, I think there's such a diversity in the collection, but I think what we're seeing more and more is there's a huge interest when people see that cross thematic approach. So, for example, at the moment, we're working on a major new gallery of 20th century history. And that's really exciting because we're looking at the last 120 years of Irish history from a whole range of different themes. And we're bringing in elements of our decorative arts collection, of our folk life collection, you know, of of our history collection. And I think, I think, Going back to to what actually both Helen and Jill were saying, that narrative piece about looking about looking at how these objects tell us about ourselves at these times is always intriguing to people. But I think also offering people opportunity. I think Helen makes a really good point about about information, and I think that sometimes objects can be uh, gateways. Into some, you're not telling somebody everything. Sometimes, actually, looking at something and going, "What is that? And why is it that shape?" And 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 I think you know when we talk about you know stone axes or when we talk about seeing reoccurring forms. Even we had a a, a recent exhibition in in our decorative arts and history, which we did with the Design and Craft Council of Ireland. And it was students looking at items from from objects from our collection and then designing and creating a new work inspired by that item. Um, uh, It was called Inform and it was really fascinating. And so I think those kinds of connections and themes people respond to because... Look, you know, I think everybody, you know, feels the times they live. There's there's so much difficulties and so much to take on. And there's actually a great, I think, sometimes solace in going into a museum and getting a sense of 
all of these times in history where we've endured and faced all of these things, you know, through and, the and objects. And we saw that and during the pandemic as yeah, well. Yeah, I think so. I think so. One of the things we did, in we had a Reflections on Resilience, which was an online exhibition that looked at objects within the collection that told that kind of story of human endurance. Um, so I think, you know, what do, what, do, um, what do visitors respond to? I think they respond to to intriguing objects that tell a story, that tell a personal story as well. Um, and, and, and oftentimes you will talk to people and there's one thing that really stands out for them. And oftentimes it's because it links to something very personal for them. And do you think then that Reflections on Resilience exhibition, that that told a story that was meaningful for people as, as they were part of this great global story of, of resilience in the face of, of, of a terrible pandemic like COVID. Absolutely. I, I, it's interesting. I, I have a, a, a nine-year-old daughter and she said to me recently, oh, mommy, what was your COVID? And what she meant was what happened when I was nine that was the equivalent to COVID. And I found it quite interesting because I didn't know what, exactly what to tell her. I, I got as far as telling her, well, I, I, you know, I grew up in 1980s Ireland and let me tell you about that for a start. But, but I think my point about that is, is that situation of yourself, even a nine-year-old situating themselves in a moment of history, which they know is big and important and trying to understand that in comparison to what their mother or their grandmother or their great-grandmother experienced. And I think that's how humans endure we tell each other stories about about how we've survived through different times and what we've done and and and, and objects are an essential part to telling that that i suppose material culture that piece about ourselves Helen, in terms of the Kerry County Museum, what would be the, your favourite objects or what would be the objects that you think help tell us our story in, in Ireland? That's a, <laughs> that's a tricky question. Well, there are 12 local authority museums, for starters, like we are uh, around the country. And we tell a local story. We are all designated museums under the National Monuments Act, which means we can hold archaeological objects. And I guess what we do is we have the ability to tell a more local story that maybe in the National Museum, you know, that you're telling a national story there. Um, now, in every county, of course, every county wants to have all the lovely shiny gold back down from Dublin. Hmm. But there's another angle to that, which is that there's also the pride in the fact that our story is so wonderful that it feeds into the national story. So that goes on as well. Um, and sometimes we can, you know, in on the local level, we can take objects that may get lost in the national story, but which have a real resonance back down in the in the local area. And the one that I would particularly single out here is, and it's one that is, I have a very personal connection to myself, and it's a sketch map that was drawn uh, by Roger Casement on Easter Sunday while he was in custody in Scotland Yard. And Roger Casement, you know, spent 36 hours in Kerry and he left left a very lasting legacy for such a short uh, length of time that he stayed here. And it was quite a tricky legacy because of the fact that people from Kerry were brought over to London to testify at the trial. And these were very ordinary farming, small farmers, subsistence farmers, uh, two subsistence farmers, a farm servant um, and a young boy to whom I'm related. And they were brought over basically and asked, 
did you see this man on, you know, on Good Friday? Um, and the, yes, you know what I mean? So, but the, when the, by the time they came back to Kerry, they were considered traitors and effectively ostracized. And the two younger ones effectively, um, fle- you know, left the neighborhood, never came back. Um, and the neighborhood itself around Ardfert, where, where Casement was, was, uh, was arrested um, on Ballastrand and brought to Ardfert or a Seabarg, you know, the, the, the stigma attached itself to the area that they had uh, abandoned him to his fate um, and all of that. And worse was that Casement had, had, had stashed £500 in gold and silver coins at the ring fort where he was uh, eventually, where he was arrested. Uh, and the map he drew uh, in custody was to show his interrogators, look, here's where the money is. Can you get the RIC guys in Arifur to go and find it? Because he needed it at that stage, because uh, he knew he was in deep trouble. So the story was that he, uh, the RIC men went out to the ring forge, had a route around, couldn't find anything. Um, and this was the official report was written and everything about this, that the money no was lost that, and probably local people stole it. So now, not only had they <laughs> abandoned casements, they'd also robbed him. Um, but this sketch map, you know, it, it was lost for... I, Spent a long time looking for it, and eventually it showed up uh, at an auction in 2016. And uh, the it had been taken. The, the sketch map had been taken by one of Casement's interrogators, um, and he kept it. And uh, with it, he put a note saying that the money had actually been found and had been divvied up amongst the two um, RIC men. So. <laughs> So it was. It, it's it's a story like that story still ripples down to today, and it comes to another point, which is that, you know, like at this stage, the people who were involved in that story were at a point there where the story is passing from personal memory. Like my grand, Casement was brought to my grandmother's house, and I grew up with this story about Casement had been given a cup of tea at the house, and that. But it's passing from personal memory into history. And I think that's something that happened as well during COVID in that uh, every museum, I think, I'm sure Jill and uh, Lynn found the same thing, that we got a lot of people coming in with objects because they were clearing out their houses because they had the time, but also thinking about their own mortality and that and what happens after I'm gone. And, and I think it's when you get to that third generation where it's passing from that sort of very personal and family connection into a point where, well, the next generation aren't going to understand this, that, uh, that things become pass into history and pass into the thing called the artefact. It comes back to that, that, that story of the sketch map because the little boy, he was 12 years old, who was brought to, um, to London that time, his daughter was still alive um, in 2016 when I was, she was writing to me from New Zealand telling me about the impact of that of that on his on his life and um and just recently her uh grandniece got in touch with me saying i've just discovered this story so she's now discovering this story all anew you know so um it's that generational thing i think with the more recent objects is is very very interesting to witness 
No, it's a brilliant story, Helen, and it shows how it's a story about 1916 and the rising and the revolutionary generation, but also about the people in the generations afterwards, including your own family and and how these objects connect connect you all together. Yes, uh, absolutely. And that, that comes back to my original point that, you know, objects always come with people attached. Somewhere or other, you know, even the very oldest object, archaeological uh, item, there's always somebody attached to it somewhere along the line. And you just have to root around until you find that. Very good. Well, we are talking about historical artefacts tonight on the show, their significance and how they help us understand our history. We're going to take a very quick break now. When we come back, I'll be talking to Trevor White, the director of the Little Museum of Dublin, about some of the objects that they have in their collection and what they tell us about the history of the city of Dublin. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking history, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we tell the history of our country through artefacts. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Trevor White, the director of the Little Museum of Dublin. Trevor, very welcome back to the show. Thanks, Patrick. Can I begin by asking you, how can we tell the history of a country, or in this case, the history of a city like Dublin, Mm. through artefacts? Well, I suppose the challenge is to capture the personality of a place. And for me, you know, I've always thought of Dublin really as less of a city and more of a very large village, frankly. Uh, And that intimacy is part of its charm. I suppose within the Little Museum of Dublin, what we try to do is to reflect uh, that personality in in a collection created by public donation. Uh, So we use small items, really, to tell a much larger story. Uh, Most people who come to the museum come on a guided tour and performance is very much at the heart of the of, of the experience of, of a visit to the museum. Like I've always been a huge fan of the museum and I love the I love the items and there's always something new to see and something different and mm. you have things like a, a shutter that has the bullet hole from 1916 mm. or you have um, you know a letter from a 20 year old James Joyce looking for money from Lady Gregory mm. but you've, you've selected some artefacts that may be items that give us an insight into a changing Dublin at different times. You also have a wonderful autograph book from one of the the top restaurants at the time. What we do indeed. A woman called Polly Moore worked in Jamais restaurant, which uh, again, some of your older listeners may recall, uh, which was uh, in in the space uh, that was subsequently taken over by Lily's Bordello, which I remember seeing you in many years ago. Once or twice. (laughs) Once or twice. But anyway, Jamais, as you know, was the great, you know, Dublin's only French restaurant for over 40 years. And Polly worked there and she had an autograph book And the book itself is an extraordinary slice of political, cultural and social history. So you have famous names. You have uh, William Butler Yeats, who apparently had his own table in Jamais. Uh, You have Countess Markovic. You have Douglas Hyde. But you also have visiting stars of the day like Dame Nellie Melba, uh, alongside a host of people whose names would be completely unfamiliar to us, you know, who who would have caused great excitement, you know, uh, on arriving in Jamais, uh, but are now long forgotten. And then some people even drew little drawings and pictures and everything. That's right. There's a gorgeous picture uh, within the autograph book by William Morpin, the artist of himself, uh, sucking a drink through a a straw. And uh, so it's, again, what I love about it is is that it marries different worlds. You know, it's the artistic world, it's the political world, it's social life in Dublin. Um, all in one very small object. Now, I'm a big fan of Monster Munch. 
but I've never <laughs> seen a gold-plated one. So where does this come from? Well, well, when we opened the museum 10 years ago, we asked the artist James Hanley to curate a selection uh, of works by leading Irish artists that might help us to tell the story of the city through, through the 20th century. And James asked Caroline McCarthy, the sculptor, uh, whether she might uh, create something that spoke to the values of the Celtic tiger. So Caroline, uh, I mean, it's an absolutely ingenious response. She decided she was going to take a packet of Monster Munch, again, a very mundane object, uh, and gold plate uh, the Monster Munch. And, and I suppose... Uh, we use it to tell the story of the Celtic tiger, which was, uh, as your listeners know all too well, gold on the outside and rubbish on the inside. And then going further back, you know, brings back uh, memories of when the Beatles came to Ireland. You know, you have items that that remind us of, of that visit and when there was all that excitement and energy. And of course, the same year when JFK visited that we talked about a, a few weeks ago. Indeed. And 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 sadly, the, the arrival of the Beatles on the 7th of no- November 1963, it sort of sandwiches uh, those two events. You know, the, the arrival of Kennedy, I think, comes on the 26th of June mm. and then dies, of course, later in, in November of 1963 is assassinated. Um, but yes, they come to Dublin and they create an absolute uh, pandemonium on O'Connell Street. The traffic is stopped and uh, there's a wonderful photograph in the Irish Times the next day of, of young people th- throwing themselves at the Gardaí, you know, desperate to get a glimpse of the Beatles who actually played two uh, gigs that night. And we have a ticket from the concert uh, that, that evening, which has gone on view uh, recently, very generously donated by, by a gentleman who was there. But again, it's a small item that tells a much bigger story. What about bigger items? You know, mm. are there any big mm. uh, ones that have, you know, uh, a, 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 you know, more of a that would have imposed more on the consciousness of mm. the country? Well, funnily enough, I have two answers to that. One big, one small. The small answer is that we have a piece of Nelson's pillar. Uh, I, I, you know, most many Dubliners, of course, have a, have a piece of Nelson's pillar in the attic somewhere. Uh, you know, we meet people every day of the week who say that they that they were there, you know, in, in the days and hours after the pillar was blown Like up. the Berlin Wall. Indeed, indeed. Um, but we also have a large uh, recreation uh, of the uh, pillar itself made uh, by the artist Andrew Clancy, which is a sort of a, it's sort of 12 or 13 foot uh, recreation of the pillar itself uh, within the museum. And the pillar again, it's, it's again, it's one of these extraordinary items that 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 straddles both political and social history, because of course it's an emblem of colonial rule. Uh, and uh, indeed, Nelson, you'll know, of course, that the Nelson pillar went up long before the English got around to celebrating the Battle of Trafalgar uh, with their own pillar in 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 London. Um, but it's also a piece of social history, and you know, "Meet me at the pillar" was the catch cry for Dubliners for for generations. And you know, in many ways, they were kind of, you know, either oblivious to or unconcerned by its political significance, and they really took it to heart. Um, so when it was blown up in 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 1966, I think on the eve of the of the 50th anniversary of the Rising. Um, it was uh, the, the 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 news was greeted with with quite mixed emotions. Of course, there was also a lovely piece of Dublin wit uh, attached to that. Dubliners quickly christened the stump of the pillar the Half Nelson. The Half Nelson, <laughs> excellent. Do you think changes in technology are going to affect the kinds of artifacts we have in the future? Because, you know. 
I don't know if you would have an autograph book in a restaurant now that, you know, everything now seems to be done online, emails, text messages, WhatsApps, uh, people on their phone all mm. the time. There doesn't seem to be even newspapers, mm. you know, are going from print to now being online. And I wonder then, are we going to lose an awful lot of, of these distinctive things that connect us to our past? That's a very good question. And the truth is, I, I don't know. I mean, what I do know is that huge amount of work is very good work is, is being done to preserve, you know, to create a digital uh, repository, uh, but at the same time, it's inevitable, as as you suggest, that you know that we will lose uh, pieces of our history. One thing I admit to being very sceptical about is technology within museums. I must say, every day of the week, where you know people contact us, offering us um, ever more fancy uh, audio tours and digital solutions to problems that just don't exist. Um, for me, conversation is is you know one of the great. Uh, things about living in Dublin and we try to preserve the conversation of the city, the salty good humour of Dublin uh, within the museum. So uh, I do admit to being just a teeny bit sceptical. And what do you think is is the reaction that people have? when they, Is it a nostalgia that when they see maybe even mm. the old telecom uh, phone cards and yes. it reminds you of how, oh God, yeah, in those days we didn't have mobile phones. We were yeah. sticking in one of these cards to call home yes. if we didn't have coins. And, or is it that it connects us to even a past be further back that we don't remember? We go, oh, this is... This is a this is better than just reading about a restaurant or reading about what people ate. This is actually the menu from the restaurant. Mm. This is the autograph book that it it is a way of connecting us in a way that a regular book may not be able to in the same way. Again, a very good question. Nostalgia is a very powerful uh, social force. Historians are often quite sniffy about it. I I don't think we should be. Um, I found myself a few weeks ago at the in the National Concert Hall at a concert to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the closing of the Theatre Royal uh, on Hawkins Street. Uh, and it was the most extraordinary event. It was just pure nostalgia, but it was a, it was a very, very powerful uh, experience. And even though I'm not old enough, sadly, to remember the Theatre Royal, I very much, uh, you know, it was, it was something like nostalgia that gripped me. Um, and, I, and I must say it was, uh, I, you know, it reminded me that, 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 that it is a powerful force. And of course, there's some parts of our history that we look back with, with shame and, and, and quite rightly look back with shame. But within a city museum, I do think we have a particular obligation to try and develop civic pride. And, uh, and, and with that, in mind, you know, I, I don't, I make no apology for, for, for using nostalgia as an instrument, you know. For, for and if our listeners want to find out more and indeed pay a visit to the Little Museum, how should they, how should they go about it? Well, we're open uh, every day of the week, 10, 10 to 5, uh, guided tours on the half hour and uh, we look forward to seeing your listeners very soon. Littlemuseum.ie. Well, my thanks to Trevor White, the director of the Little Museum of Dublin. We'll be back with more on artefacts and our history right after this break. Talking History History. on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we talk about the significance of historical artefacts, how we interpret them and what we can learn from them. And I'm delighted to be rejoined by our panel, Lynn Scarf, the Director of the National Museum of Ireland, Helen O'Carroll, the Creator and Manager of Kerry County Museum, and Dr Jill Cousins, the Director of the Hunt Museum in Limerick. Now, Jill, tonight's show has been in part inspired by the wonderful exhibition that you have coming to you uh, later this month, uh, Lorcan Walsh's The Artefacts Pro 
project and it's inspired by these indigenous crafts and early Irish treasures. It has items like crosiers, missiles, bells, shrines and so on. So can you tell us maybe about this exhibition and the story that it's telling? Yeah, it came from the fact that the Hunt Museum has got probably one of the finest collections of medieval religious art from across Europe. So we don't have a lot of Irish items. I mean, we have handbells, the Antrim cross, a couple of crucifixes, rosary beads, wooden panels, things like that. But it's the comparison of those objects of Irish medieval craftsmanship and visual art, which is easily as good as the pieces that we have from Italy or Spain. So whether they're relics with chassis, Limoges plaques, the Rainier crucifix from from Belgium. So there's, there's real differences in style, but the the Irish objects make use of the spiral, the complex, the vegetal designs and, and very distinctive Celtic crosses. And I think it's this difference in patterning that makes them so recognisably Irish. Um, and it's one of the reasons that we wanted to give Lorcan Welsh, the Artifacts Project, another airing um, to entice people into experience the beauty and what he would call presence of Irish medieval art and craft, which we we lost between the Reformation um, or even sort of a bit earlier. We, we had in the Middle Ages and then we lost in the Reformation with the colonial occupation. And he was looking to try and get that back, to try and get indigenous Irish art recognised in the way that Irish music has come through the centuries much more strongly. These stories aren't just Irish stories, it's about the connections with other countries. You very much see that with this collection because these medieval religious artefacts are really a bigger part of a, of a bigger European historical story. Yeah, yes, of course. You're looking at the connection of all of those objects, but you're also looking at how objects migrate and, and how ideas migrate. But what I think is always fascinating is that it is slightly different in each country. So what you will see in Spain and Italy in your Jesus, you will see something different in an Irish representation. And that, I think, is very powerful Lynn, looking at some of the stuff in the the National Museum of Ireland, there, you know, there's the great, you know, historical artifacts going back thousands of years to the Bronze Age and so on, and mm. uh, there's great, I suppose you could call them treasures. Yeah. Uh, there's also, you know, quite ordinary things, and the ordinary things can really have a very poignant and powerful story, like the contents of the pockets of Thomas Clark before mm. he was executed mm. in 1916. You know, simple objects, but uh, you know, have a real power and poignancy to them. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's interesting you talk about the treasures and and we have the treasury in our in our Museum of Archaeology, which has that presence in many ways that, that Jill is talking about. But then also the power of what you just mentioned, for example, Thomas Clark's pocket contents. And that was a book of stamps, an empty spectacle case and a pencil. But it was more the story of those contents. So so those contents were given to his wife, Kathleen Clark, because she had asked for his body to be returned to his family, which it wasn't, obviously. And the contents of his pockets were instead. And you think about that, that woman, a young wife, and then her story. 
subsequent to that, I mean, she was she was ended up being, you know, the first female Lord Mayor. You know, she was a founding member of Fianna Fáil. She, you know, and her legacy then that continued on. But it it places you something as simple as the contents of somebody's pockets like that places you very quickly, I think, in an emotional place and a response to what was happening during that period of our history. And I think anything that helps us understand better the impact of of war, of violence, of unrest, all of those things on our communities is a really important thing, I think. And you also tell a great story with something as simple as a raffle ticket. And that shows us what was, you know, what things were worth at yeah. the time. <laughs> and, and then you go on to show great things in terms of the, the currency as well, because the yeah. beautiful drawing Lady Lavery and so on. The, uh, even the notes Tell us a lot about the history of the new Irish state. Absolutely. I mean, and and, and it, it's really interesting. I think if everybody recalls when we, then the story later, obviously when we changed to the euro and many people were lamenting the loss of all of those wonderful designs that had been on the punt and on different currencies at different times. So I think the key piece about, about objects for people and, and about museums is, I think, that sense of engaging with the presence of something. Jill talks about that. But also, I think, about giving people a feeling of time and giving them an opportunity then to think about that within their own context. And there's a real art to that. Museums more and more are realising how important they are from the point of view of that, that interpretation piece of their collection, but also in terms of that engagement with their community. And, and I think that's a re, that anchor piece of these cultural institutions is really important. We saw that actually during COVID. So for example, the first people that we saw coming back to our to the National Museum in in Collins Barracks were people who were walking there from the immediate area and engaging in that space and using it as somewhere safe to be. And isn't that a wonderful thing about how our museums become that as well? So objects in my mind, I think objects and artefacts in museums have moved from being something about what is this worth? What is the value of this thing in a financial context to something that's much more about the value of it in terms of the story that it tells, the way that it helps us in term- reflect on our identity. Helen, you've got a wonderful figurine of St. Anthony uh, at, at your museum and it gives a great insight again into the revolutionary period and the conflict of that time and the violence of the time. Yes, uh, it's a tiny little figurine of St. Anthony who was famously um, implicated in the theft of the Irish crown jewels from safe in Dublin Castle. He was the Ulster King of Arms. Um, and the crown jewels were stolen in 1908, and he lost his job, and uh, he retired to Kilmorna House, just outside Listowel, and it was uh, the residence of his half-brother, George Philip Gunmahony. And uh, so he stayed there, and anyway, in 1920, uh, Kilmorna was raided by um, the IRA. They were looking for arms. Now, they were looking for arms, and they, they asked him to open, well, <laughs> I was asked, didn't ask him politely, obviously, to uh, open the strong room door. And I, when I hear the story, I often think, were the IRA lads thinking, he might have the crown jewels in there rather than arms? But, you know, I have no proof of that. That's just my own, my own bit. But according to Vickers, he was surrounded by 10 men who were attacking to kill him unless he opened the strong room door. And then... 
So he takes out this little one-inch figurine of St. Anthony and brandishes it at the, te- the ten men who, who suddenly, you know, turn tail and run. And you just, you can just picture that and how incongruous the sizing of this little thing, you know, and, and, and ten guys who would, you know, make mince meat of this guy fleeing. Though, obviously, it didn't help him the following year because not the same guys, but another bunch came along the next year and uh, burned Kilmorna to the ground and um, he was shot dead. Um, and uh, so it, it is a, it's a, it's a, a very sad and poignant story. And I think it's the kind of thing, and just going back a little to what Lynn was saying there about the value of objects and stuff like that, I think, I think part of it as well is that museums are now also making strenuous efforts to engage uh, people emotionally and spiritually as well as intellectually. And I think maybe in the past they were, that intellectual um, thing was probably uh, a bit more to the fore, that this here is an object, here are the facts about it, here, it's like like learning about the tar brooch when you were in school. Um, but, you know, now we're kind of um, not getting rid of that, but also very aware that for people to understand an object and and to value it, they have to value it not only in intellectual terms, or they will only value it, not just in intellectual terms, but if it moves them, whether that's emotionally or spiritually or inspires them or whatever it is, excites their imagination. And if we are to do our jobs properly, we have to, you know, to see an object like that and be able to bring those things out. And that's our job is to communicate that and let people and leave that space then for people to uh, to project their own things or take their own things out of it. You know, um, and I think whereas in the past people were being told what to think about an object, now I don't think any of us really would 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 dare to tell people this is this is how you should see it you know it's the the space is always now left for people to to make their own narrative as well about the object and Helen one thing that's also struck me is looking at how some of these older uh, artifacts were discovered was the importance of turf cutting because mm. uh, things like your uh, uh, hair hurling balls which uh, show uh, uh, you know and, and quite a few of them were discovered uh, thanks to turf cutting yeah and this was a great piece of work that was done by Clodagh Doyle in the National Museum mm. some years ago um, up in Thurlock Park and um, you know there are there are you know about 16, 17, I think now at this stage, hair hurling balls. And um, nearly all of them come from uh, along the western seaboard. There are none from Kilkenny, as, as Clodagh was saying. Everyone <laughs> after, is there any from Kilkenny? Um, and there are none. Uh, there are like six from Kerry. And, you know, <laughs> we're hardly the hurling heartland. Um, it's because of bogs, yeah, that they were found, uh, the bogs preserve them, you know. Um, and... You know, they were, they were made by using cow hair and, and, and then finished off with, with, uh, with horse hair. And, and one thing I find about those uh, hair hurling balls as well is that you, know, you think about the medieval period, sometimes, you know, you kind of get, you know, it's all grim and, you know, nobody was having fun or anything like that. But, you know, the hair ball, you know, you just think, you know, the way hurling brings so much colour to an Irish summer, um, and probably did, like our hairball is one of the third oldest in the country. Um, Clodagh had it dated between 1278 to 
1309. The oldest she found was from Limerick, um, from 1157. And, you know, they probably was, they probably all had their own colour at the time as well, their own Henry Shefflins, their own, you know, <laughs> Aaron Gillans, all the rest of it, you know. And, uh, and, and that's what I'm trying to get at, is that once you, you know, you could be very po-faced talking about an object like that, but you know, should see it like this was something that was used. Um, and, and people treasured, even though it was made from something like cow hair. And Lynn, you also have some uh, items that are also discovered thanks to turf cutting and oh, also yeah. some fascinating insights by something as simple as graffiti on on a, on a Viking wooden board that gives us a great insight into uh, Viking ships and how they operated. Mm-hmm. So even, even objects like that tell a, a great story. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things just talking about what Helen's talking about about the hair hurling balls and Clodagh's work but also it made me realise um, I was recently re-listening to Maggie O'Farrell a a writer who was talking about uh, she was on Desert Island Discs and she was asked what she would put and she actually said the Museum of Archaeology which is very exciting but it's more the reason that she said it which is that it was to do with that so many of the artefacts in the collection were found by farmers or people out cutting turf. And I think that's a wonderful thing about the collections and museums in Ireland is that because we have this great history in terms of our of our heritage and our cultural heritage of coming into the museums, that if you walk into the National Museum of Ireland or Helen's Museum or there is this there are these these objects, these artifacts that have been found through people's daily lives that and there's there's a great beauty in that in terms of from every parish and every county, you, there's an object within the National Museum or the local museum that represents that. Uh, and that connection to our cultural heritage, I think, is very special. Jill, what about things like uh, the Antrim Cross? What about things like crucifixes? What story can we get from the past by by looking at some of those items, especially in, in the new Artifacts Project? You're, you're very much looking at a period of Irish where the, the saints and scholars, it's the importance of the, the monasteries um, to Irish life. The croziers, which are really beautiful. And it's not so much about the religious objects, it's about the things that, that were being crafted at the time. The use of the Irish skills in doing so, the metallurgy, the fact that you could, on the Antrim Cross, you've got this incredible Mirfiori um, enamels that they were able to do in tiny scale renditions of, of of dragons with open mouths and you can you can recognize it. I'm very keen on digitizing these things so you can blow them up and you can see them in a way that you've not been able to see them before. And that will be running from the 21st of July to the 11th of September. Uh, Helen, what about you? A pitch for the museum to inspire our listeners to go and visit. What would you say? Well, I think I I can hardly uh, not mention Tom Crean, who's one of the most popular figures in the museum. I mean, we've had a collection of objects relating to uh, Tom Crean. They've been on loan to his family for a number of years now. Um, and every child in Ireland now does Tom and in the primary school curriculum, um, and they haven't been put off him in the way we were. Another generation, my generation, was put off of Peg, let's say, but uh, he's still um, 
inspiring people today. And Lynn, I'll leave the final word to you. With something like the National Museum of Ireland, mm. it's it's a place where families could visit, you know, every so often and get an entirely different experience. There is so much. There's so much to see. So in many ways, Patrick, you've, you've said exactly it. It's free. You can go in anytime you want. And if you want to just walk through a few floors, that's that's what you should do. But But each time you go in, because there is so much wonderful things to see, you are guaranteed to find something that will intrigue you and surprise you. And I think if you set off on your journey just to find one thing that's unexpected, I guarantee you will find it. It's it's our national collection. Well, my thanks to my brilliant panel tonight for bringing all of these artefacts to life and I think inspiring all of us uh, to visit their museums. My thanks to Lynn Scarf, Director of the National Museum of Ireland, Helen O'Carroll, the creator and manager of Kerry County Museum, Dr Jill Cousins, Director of the Hunt Museum in Limerick and of course Trevor White, the Director of the Little Museum of Dublin. Well, that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and Peter Malloy on sound. We've been talking history. Good night.